be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 47. Genesis chapter 47. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. Then Joseph brought in his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, How old are you? Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are one hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to the number of their families. Now there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Then Joseph said, Give your livestock, and I will give you bread for your livestock, if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate." Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's, and as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore they did not sell their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. It shall come to pass in the harvest that you will give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and for food, for those of your households and as food for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. 
And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of his bed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. The 17th century English Puritan Edward Lay once wrote, that the promises of God serve believers as the ground of our hope, the objects of our faith, and the rule of prayer. Well, this certainly proves true in the life of Jacob, as we'll see in our text this morning. And normally I share a little quote at the beginning of the sermon that has to do with the subject, but this morning we're actually going to let Edward Lee and this quote of his guide our Uh, journey through Genesis chapter 47. And I hope to encourage you by Jacob's example here to find the ground and the foundation for your hope uh, in the promises of God, to find uh, objects for your faith to grab onto and fuel for your prayers. And as we come to chapter 47, we, we find ourselves nearing the end of Jacob's story. He's now an old man. He has been reunited with his son, Joseph, and relocated to the land of Egypt. And before we get into the events of this chapter, I want us to take a moment and remind ourselves of the promises that have been made to the family of Abraham, promises that have been inherited by Jacob, promises that he is clinging to in this chapter. There are four promises in particular that I believe summarize the whole of the covenant of promise made with Abraham. In Genesis 12, when God called Abraham, it says this, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there are four uh, promises here in this passage. The the promise of a land to be their inheritance. The promise of a multitude of descendants for Abraham. The promise of a blessing on the family of Abraham. And a promise to the nations of a blessing. These promises are later expanded, uh, explained, and passed down both to Isaac and then to Jacob. And they understand uh, these promises. They understand the promise of the land uh, to be the land of Canaan, the land to which God led Abraham. They understand that uh, it is in Egypt, as we saw last week, that God will multiply their family to become a great nation. But what this blessing looks like in particular is still 
a little uncertain, especially uh, this promise of the blessing, that, that, that they will be blessed and be a blessing to others. What does that look like in their lives? But Jacob knows these promises, and what's more, he trusts them, he hopes in them, and he prays for them. But he doesn't get to see them all fulfilled in his lifetime. But he does get glimpses of the fulfillment of the promises. In Hebrews chapter 11, it speaks of the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And we see this explicitly in Genesis chapter 47. Jacob glimpses the promises but without seeing their ultimate fulfillment. He knows that God will multiply his family to become a great nation. And he knows that God has said that he would do this while they dwell in Egypt. He gets a glimpse of that as he moves to Egypt with his family and they begin to prosper there and grandchildren and great-grandchildren are born to him. It says in verses 27, and 28. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So Jacob lived 17 years in Egypt. That's a dozen years after the end of the famine. And his family is prospering. They're multiplying exceedingly. They're settled into Goshen, the best of the land. There's a sort of prefiguring of their coming inheritance in the land of Canaan. And God assured Jacob in chapter 46 that he would bring them back to the land that he had promised them. And so Jacob gets a glimpse of the promise, the promise that Abraham would be a blessing, that those who blessed him and by extension his family would in turn be blessed by God. Jacob has come to Egypt now. Uh, if you remember, Joseph sent his brothers and told them to bring his father down that he might behold Joseph's glory in the land of Egypt. And Jacob has come now and he has seen the exalted position that his son holds in the land. This chapter tells the story of Jacob's arrival in Egypt and Joseph goes and speaks to the king, to Pharaoh, and, and presents five of his brothers to the king. He secures a place for them to live and to tend their livestock in Goshen, an area which Pharaoh calls the best of the land in verse 6. And we find that Joseph's brothers enjoy uh, some privileges because of Joseph. Pharaoh instructs Joseph to choose from among his brothers the most competent and trustworthy and to give them charge of Pharaoh's own livestock. Joseph surely could have secured positions for them in the administration of Pharaoh. They could have had administrative jobs or military jobs. He could have gotten them places of distinction, but he chose rather to keep the family intact to keep them separate from the Egyptian people by continuing their work as shepherds. And we noted last week that this served to keep the nation of Israel whole and pure during the time of their dwelling in Egypt. But then Joseph brings his aged father in to meet Pharaoh. And in verses 11 and 12, we then see the family getting settled into their new home in Goshen. But then the story of the family is interrupted by 
the continuing story of Joseph's administration over the land of Egypt during the famine. And then the final few verses of the chapter return again to the the story of Jacob as he calls for Joseph and, and makes him promise to bury his father in the land of Canaan. And so as I read this, several questions arose in my mind. First, why is this the story of Joseph's administration of grain to the land of Egypt during the famine? Why is that inserted here? Why not put that at the end of chapter 41 where it begins to tell us how Joseph prepared for the famine and administered it, and then tell the story of Joseph's brothers. Why why insert this into the middle of the story at this point? And, And the chronology isn't entirely clear either. Verses 13 through 26 seem to kind of summarize the whole period of the famine from the beginning to the end in Joseph's dealings with the Egyptians. So why put it here? I, I, as I read this multiple times this week, I kept thinking, why is this here instead of back at the end of chapter 41? But I, I came to realize I think it's here in order to make a theological point, a point about the promise that was made to Abraham that he would be a blessing and that those who blessed him would be blessed by God. See, in the past, we've seen that Laban was blessed by Joseph's presence in his household. Potiphar was or by Jacob's presence. Potiphar was blessed by Joseph's presence in his household and later by Joseph's presence in the prison. And most of all, we've seen in the last several chapters that Pharaoh and the entire Egyptian nation has been blessed by the presence of Joseph. And I began to notice that there were some themes that were prevalent here in this text that we had seen in previous chapters. When the famine first struck, you might remember that that Jacob spoke to his sons in chapter 42, and he, he told them to go to Egypt and buy grain, and he said to them, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. That's a good reason to go buy grain. Better to live than to die. But then the second year of the famine comes along, and and Judah, the oldest brother, comes and and said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me, it's a reference to Benjamin, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. So now this is becoming a theme. We're seeing the exact same language used multiple times. Well, then Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and he says to them, but now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life that we may live and not die. Joseph says, God took care of that. He sent me here before you to preserve life, but it doesn't end there. In our text this morning, in Genesis 47, this theme continues, but in a surprising way. Early in the famine, the Egyptians apparently ran out of whatever personal stores of grain they had, and they began buying grain from Pharaoh, the grain that Joseph had gathered up back in chapter 41. And in verse 15, it says that the the Egyptians come to Joseph When the money had failed in the land of Egypt, in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. 
So Joseph trades for their livestock. But then when that round of grain has run out and the famine has continued another year, the people return again to bargain for their lives. And this time they say in verse 19, Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die. The same exact language that was used twice previously by Joseph's family. Joseph, to use his own words to his brothers, then saves their lives with a great deliverance. He saves not only his own family, but the entire nation of Egypt. Saves them from starvation, and God sent him there for that purpose, to preserve life. In a very real sense, the the promise to Abraham that he would be a blessing to the nations and that those who blessed him would be blessed by God has begun to be realized in the person of Joseph. And I think that's the point of inserting this account of Joseph's administration of the famine into this chapter where we're telling the story of Jacob coming to Egypt so that the reader can get a glimpse along with Jacob of the glory of God beginning to fulfill his promises through Joseph. But there's another glimpse here as well. Earlier in the chapter, Joseph had brought his father to meet Pharaoh, and when he did, something very interesting transpired that that we might miss on a casual reading of the text, and it's very important, and that is that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. We read in verses 7 through 10, and and what we see is an obviously old man being brought before the king, and, and Pharaoh asks him how old he is, and Joseph almost appears to complain in verse 9. Joseph said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. And then he blesses Pharaoh and he, he leaves. But this is a very important scene. In fact, I think it's the key uh, scene in this chapter. First, The verse I read earlier from Hebrews said that the patriarchs, quote, confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And here Jacob explicitly says that he is a pilgrim and that his fathers were pilgrims as well. And that's important because it ties this passage to the explanation in Hebrews. But secondly, the text mentions Jacob blessing Pharaoh twice in verse 7 and in verse 10. This probably took the form of some sort of prayer or invoking the blessing of God onto Pharaoh. But as we've seen throughout the Joseph narratives, when something is repeated twice, that means that it is sure to happen. Joseph said this explicitly about Pharaoh's dreams. He had the dream twice because the Lord had determined that this was going to happen. And and we've seen throughout the Joseph narratives that many of the events are repeated twice, first by the narrator and then again in the words of one of the main figures in the story. So that theme of repeating something twice because it is sure to happen is, is continued here, indicating that Pharaoh would indeed be blessed by God. And this is really important because... It's another instance of the promise being fulfilled that those who blessed the family of of Abraham would be blessed. Pharaoh had blessed 
Joseph and had blessed then Joseph's family, and he will in turn be blessed by God. But secondly, it makes a point. Pharaoh was by the Egyptians considered to be a god, or at least to be the avatar of the gods. But here, Jacob, the shepherd, blesses Pharaoh. Well, in Hebrews, the idea of blessing is discussed in the context of Melchizedek and Abraham, if you'll remember that story from earlier in Genesis. And it says this, remember that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And Hebrews chapter 7, verse 7 says, Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. The lesser is blessed by the better. And Jacob blesses Pharaoh. That means that Pharaoh stands below Jacob, even though he's the king of Egypt. This will be an important thing for Jacob's descendants to remember as they are enslaved and afflicted in Egypt for 400 years. Jacob stands higher in the esteem of God than does Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So Jacob is beginning to get some glimpses of these promises being fulfilled, but he doesn't receive the fullness of them, and so he, he has to trust that the promises will be filled, fulfilled in their fullness. Hebrews says that he saw the promises afar off and was assured of them and embraced them. Well, what Jacob saw from a distance in these glimpses of blessing was the promise of the Messiah, the promise of the seed of Abraham who would be a blessing to the nations. So with Abraham, Jacob is looking forward to Jesus, and he's doing so with joy and with gladness. He also saw the promise of the land from a distance. He had seen the land with his own eyes, but then was forced to leave it or face starvation. God assured him that his descendants would return to the land, but it'll be 400 years in the future. And so these promises from God, these glimpses that Jacob has given of their future fulfillment as he sees the events of his own life, these are the ground and the foundation of his hope. The only reason he could have any hope for his descendants, for his sons and his grandsons, was because of the promises of God that he trusted in. And these little tidbits that he was given to taste of the fulfillment of these promises allowed him to see that the Lord is good, as the psalmist says. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Such a man was Jacob, and having been blessed, he was able to bless in return. And so like Jacob, our hope must be rooted and built upon the foundation of the promises of God. Apart from his promises, we have nothing to hope for. We can't hope in our own righteousness. We have none. We can't hope in, for divine justice because we don't want divine justice. We don't want to get what we deserve. We want grace and mercy. We can't hope for the strength of men, for it fails. We must hope in Christ alone. In Christ, for as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. In other words, God doesn't mince words. When he says something, he means it. When he promises something, he will fulfill it. His promises are sure, and they are fulfilled in 
Christ. Like Jacob, we've been given some glimpses of that fulfillment. Paul goes on to say there in 2 Corinthians, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us, and who has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The Holy Spirit in us is a guarantee of the promises. So what does the Holy Spirit in our hearts do that helps us to understand the guarantee, that gives us the glimpses of the promise, the fulfillment of the promises? Well, the Holy Spirit, and this is not an all-inclusive list, but the Holy Spirit works regeneration and faith in the elect so that they might believe. Titus 3.5, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, bringing us to repentance, John 16.8. The Holy Spirit testifies concerning Christ, the one in whom we are to hope and believe, in John 15.26. The Holy Spirit teaches us the truth of God found in the Scriptures, John 16.13. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us as God's people, Romans 15.16. The Holy Spirit empowers us to put sin to death in Romans 8.13. The Holy Spirit gives us the words to speak in times of trial, Luke 12, 11 and 12. The Holy Spirit equips His church by giving gifts to every member, 1 Corinthians 12.11. The Holy Spirit leads His church by appointing elders in Acts 20.28. 20, the Holy Spirit comforts those who fear the Lord in Acts 9.31. The Holy Spirit teaches us how to pray in Jude 1.20. And the Holy Spirit causes us to abound in hope, Romans 15.13. To abound in hope. And our hope is founded and grounded on the promises of God. Ephesians 1.13, Paul calls the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit is not just the guarantee of the promises of God. He is the down payment. He is the beginning of the fulfillment of the promises of God to us. And by His work in our hearts and in the life of the church, we get glimpses of the coming final fulfillment of the promises, just as Jacob got glimpses in his day and built his hope on those promises, so too we are to build our hope on the promises. But as that quote I shared at the beginning said, the promises of God are not only the grounds of our hope, but they are also the objects of our faith. In other words, the promises of God are what we believe. And we believe them because they are the promises of God Almighty who cannot lie. Let's go back to Jacob's interaction with Pharaoh again. When, when Jacob answers Pharaoh's question about his age, he says this, Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. Now again, as I said, it, it almost sounds like Jacob is complaining, but I don't think that's Jacob's point. Pharaoh seems impressed by his advanced age, and Jacob responds by saying, it's not the years, it's the miles. Jacob had had a rough life. He had worked hard throughout his youth in the family business. And then he had to flee from the land of Canaan 
under the threat of death because of his brother Esau's hatred and murderous rage. He spent 20 long years working for his uncle Laban. He returned home then to Canaan with grave apprehension of the reunion with his brother Esau. His beloved wife, Rachel, died soon after they returned to the land. And then he had to deal with his son, Simeon and Levi, and their cruelty to this city of Shechem and, and the conflict that caused between Jacob's family and the people of the land. And then... His beloved son, Joseph, was lost and believed dead for over 20 years. Well, Jacob suspected that his other sons had something to do with Joseph's demise. Now he has to leave the land again, this time because of the threat of starvation due to famine. He's had a hard life, and can you imagine the weight that is weighing him down as he grieved for Joseph for 20 years, suspecting that his other sons knew something they weren't telling him, that they may have had a hand in it because of their jealousy and their hatred towards their brother. And yet with all of that, Jacob is looking towards the promises with hope. G.K. Beale writes and says, when we are comfortable, we too easily trust in the adequacy of our resources. When we're afflicted, we realize the inadequacy of our resources and look to Christ so that his life is released in us. This life flows not only in us, but through us to bless others. Jacob had learned to look to God in the midst of affliction so that he could be a blessing to others. Hudson Taylor, the great 19th century missionary to China, once Uh, spoke about the weight of suffering that Christians often experience. And he said, it doesn't matter how great the pressure is. What really matters is where the pressure is. Whether it comes between you and God or whether it presses you nearer his heart. Like Jacob, we must learn to let the pressure of suffering and affliction press us nearer to God rather than further from him. In fact, God often uses suffering for just that purpose in our lives. All Christians suffer, as Hudson Taylor noted. It's part of the Christian life. And just as God sent Joseph to Egypt via his brother's hatred for the purpose of saving lives and being a blessing to the nations, so God often brings various trials and afflictions into our lives for the purpose of pressing us nearer to God teaching us to trust in him rather than in ourselves. So when trial and affliction come your way, you can be thankful that God is pressing you closer to himself. Kind of an odd way to think about trial and affliction, affliction, to be thankful for it. But if God is sovereign and providential over all things and he is using those trials and afflictions to press you nearer to his heart, That is something to be thankful for. All the promises of God have their yes and their amen in Christ. And it is these various promises that give us handles to grab onto with our faith. They give us concrete things to hope in, to trust God for. Look at the example of Jacob. He has the promise of the land, which he knows won't be fulfilled until long after he has passed. He's glimpses of it. He was born in the land of promise. He, he lived there many years at various times in his life. 
But now he's in Egypt, and he knows he will die in Egypt. But then he makes Joseph promise to bury him in the land of Canaan. In, in a scene that calls to mind Abraham's dying wish that Isaac not bear, marry a Canaanite woman, but instead take a wife from among his father's household, Jacob similarly makes a dying wish that Joseph would bury him with his fathers in the land of Canaan. The form of the oath is identical in verse 29. So Joseph made, oops, sorry, wrong chapter. Verse 29, he says, When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and true with me, truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt. Well, back in chapter 24, Abraham had made his servant take an oath to find a wife for Isaac among his father's household. And the form of the oath was the same, to put his hand under his thigh as he swore this oath. So I think we're meant to see a connection between these two dying wishes of Abraham and Jacob. But then the question arises, why is it so important to Jacob that he be buried in Canaan? And I think there are several reasons for this. First, I think there's some desire that we all share to be buried with family. We often see husbands and wives and family members buried near one another in cemeteries. Now, that's natural, I think. But second, Jacob knows that Canaan is the promised land. And even though he won't inherit that promise himself, he believes that promise. He believes it so strongly that he wants his body laid to rest there. And third, I think he has some concern for his sons and their descendants. The same concern that Abraham had for his son, Isaac. Abraham wanted his son to marry a woman from among his father's household and not from among the Canaanites because he was concerned for the purity and the holiness of his family. He didn't want his family to become part of the culture of the Canaanites. In the same way, Jacob does not want his family to become immersed into the culture of the Egyptians to forget the promises of God. And so he insists on having his body returned to Canaan and demonstrates to his descendants the importance of God's promises. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. That's not necessarily speaking about a financial inheritance. In this case, Jacob is leaving an inheritance of hope to his children's children. And this is an important point for us to remember as parents and grandparents. Our words and our actions, particularly in times of difficulty, will have an influence on how our children think about the promises of God, what value they place on them, what hope they derive from them. Our responsibility as parents goes beyond merely providing for the material needs of our children. It includes thinking about the spiritual heritage that we are establishing for generations to come. And one reason I believe that, that, that Jacob insists on being buried in Canaan is because of what he says to Pharaoh in verse 9. As I said earlier, he, he comments that he and his fathers were pilgrims on earth, according to Hebrews. But listen to what Hebrews says concerning this. This is from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, 
were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Four, those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now, this is an important passage because it tells us that the patriarchs knew more than we sometimes give them credit for. The passage in Romans 4 that we read earlier as part of our responsive reading this morning says, For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That he should be the heir of the world not just Canaan, but of the world. Hebrews says that they were looking beyond this world to the world to come, seeking a heavenly country. They understood that Canaan wasn't the end goal. They understood that the land of Canaan was typological, representing the new heavens and the new earth that would be inherited by the elect who were joined to Christ by faith. Eden had served as a a special place on earth where God met with Adam and Eve, walking with them and talking with them in the cool of the day. God's presence with man in the garden. But then Adam's sin changed that and he was expelled from Eden and away from God's presence. But the promise of a redeemer in Genesis 3.15 was the promise of one who would defeat Satan and restore right fellowship between God and man. Canaan with the temple in Jerusalem was a down payment on that promise. The Old Testament speaks of Canaan repeatedly using the language of Eden. In Genesis 13, if you might remember, the Jordan River Valley is described as well-watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Balaam later describes Israel as being like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the water. Isaiah speaks of the restoration of the people back to the land, saying, For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. The promised land flowing with milk and honey with the temple in Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God with men, was a recapitulation of Eden. But it wasn't the end. The end was the seed of Abraham who would come, who would defeat Satan, complete Adam's unfinished work, Christ who declared himself to be the new temple, the presence of God with men. And then he goes on to finish Adam's unfinished work, to expand the borders of the temple, to fill the earth as his church spreads throughout the nations, filling the earth with worshipers and with the presence of God. The patriarchs knew this. They knew more than we often think they did. They they knew this. They knew that Canaan itself was but a glimpse of the true fulfillment of God's promises. That's why Paul says in Romans 4 that Abraham was promised that he would inherit the earth. That's why Hebrews says that even when they were in Canaan, they were looking beyond it 
looking for the world to come towards the heavenly country. They were looking for the promise of redemption, the promises of the gospel. That was, that was the handle that they hung their faith on, not a piece of real estate in the Middle East, but the promise of a redeemed humanity living forever with God in a world remade. That's the same promise that we have that serves us in the same way as an object for our faith. Christ has redeemed us by his blood. He has kept the covenant which Adam failed to keep. He has kept the law which Israel failed to keep. He has earned the reward, and he was promised a share of that inheritance to all those who join him by faith. Hebrews 9.15 says, Now for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And it's the assurance of that promise that enables us to endure hardship and affliction, looking towards that heavenly country that is our eternal inheritance. In his book, Living by God's Promises, Pastor Joel Beakey says that the tree left standing when the storm is past is the one with the deepest roots. Those roots must cling to the promises of God in Christ Jesus to those who believe. Faith trusts the promises of God even when they're only seen from afar and enjoyed but in part. Let's return to that quote that we began with, where Edward Lay tells us that the promises of God are the ground of our hope, the object of our faith, and the rule of prayer. We've seen the promises are the ground and the foundation of our hope, and they are the objects of our faith. But what does he mean by saying that they are the rule of prayer? Well, Lay was a proper Puritan, at least in regards to the titling of his book, The full title is this, A Treatise of the Divine Promises in Five Books. In the first, a general description of their nature, kinds, excellency, right use, properties, and the persons to whom they belong. In the four last, a declaration of the covenant itself. You've got to love Puritan book titles. Well, in book one, chapter four, he goes on to describe the proper use of the promises in the prayer life of God's people. And so he tells us here what he means by saying that the promises are to serve us as a rule of prayer. And he gives three ways in which they serve. First, he says that that we must pray according to the will of God. And here he quotes 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. His assertion then follows that we have no more sure way of determining what the will of God is than to resort to the things that God has promised. If God has promised something, then we can pray for it with complete confidence that this is the will of God. He promised it. So if we pray the promises, we are praying according to the will of God. Second, Lay notes that we are to pray with faith And here he quotes Mark chapter 11, verse 24. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Well, what could we believe with more confidence than the things that we know God has promised? 
Therefore, we should pray the promises. We should let the promises be the rule of our prayers. Let them guide our prayers with faith. These are the expressed will of God for His people. He has promised that He will do this. Third, Lay says that the promises are also a rule for how we must pray. He says, as things are promised, so must they be prayed for. Things absolutely promised may be absolutely asked. But where God hath put conditions and exceptions to His promise, there our prayers also must be conditional. And we must express or reserve in our minds some such secret limitations as these. And then he gives us examples of how we ought to pray. If God see, to, see it to be good, or if his good pleasure be such, or if it may stand with his glory. In other words, we must not presume upon God in our prayers, but let the very nature of the promises guide our prayers in humility. We shouldn't presume to instruct the Almighty in regards to when or how he keeps his promises. We may with boldness approach his throne, as Scripture tells us, and plead his promises in faith. But as Lay says, there must be a submission to God's will as we pray. He says, in regard of circumstances of time, means, and measure, for these the Lord hath reserved in his own power. We must not in our prayers prescribe God the particular time when he should give us blessings or help us out of misery, yet we may lawfully pray that he would hear us speedily, because that he has promised to do in Psalm 102, verse 3. So as to letting the promises be a rule of our prayers, they should be the guide for what we pray, having assurance that these things promised are the will of God. They should be prayed in faith, having an assurance that God will do what he has promised. And they should be prayed in humility, not presuming to instruct God concerning how and when he keeps his promises. So let's look one more time at the example of Jacob. When he asked Joseph to bury him in the land of Canaan, it says in verse 31, Then he said, Swear to me, and he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. Jacob was unable at this point to even rise from the bed in order to bow and pray. So he just bows himself on his bed and goes to the Lord in prayer, pleading the promises of God concerning the multiplication of his family into a great nation, the redeeming of his descendants from Egypt, their receiving the promised inheritance in Canaan. And in his commentary on this verse, Calvin surmises that Jacob's prayer must have been a prayer of thanksgiving thanksgiving for the promises and the assurance that he had in the word of God as he faced death. So let me encourage you this morning to search the scriptures for the promises of God and let them be to you a grounds of your hope, objects for your faith, and the rule of your prayers. For all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Christ, our promised Redeemer. As I said earlier, the patriarchs knew more than we often give them credit for. Paul says in Acts 26, verses 6 through 8, that the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, and then he goes on to say that that, that hope of the promise that God made to the patriarchs was that God raises the dead. They knew that. 
They knew the promise of the resurrection. We have this same hope, the hope of the promise of the resurrection, as Paul reminded us this morning in CLA. And it is, and I will close with this, as Peter tells us in chapter 1, it is a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Let's pray.